I mean, I've been called all sorts of names in the past. I thought it was quite good. I think Judd referred to it, didn't he, as essentialism or something like that, or trying to work out what's essential for the for the work, you know, which is a state, you know, an object to cheese where you can't, you know, subtract or add anything without changing it, the balance. It's, it's just, you know, keeping your head down and working at something until you, you feel you've just got it right without taking too much away or adding it. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the first episode of season four. But before we begin, don't forget to stay up to date by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. In October 1996, the age of postmodernism was on its way out, and a new appreciation for the simple lines of modernism were back in vogue, and in a whole new way. And one designer at the center of this shift was British architect and my guest today, John Pawson. With his new book at the time, simply called Minimum, filled with pictures of rustic vases and empty green fields, he made the case for creating a world we usually just have one word for, minimalism. That book came off the heels of his revolutionary flagship for Calvin Klein that transformed the idea of a simple shop into something of a temple to the fashion gods. Ever since, Pawson has been a quiet revolutionary, creating spaces and objects that have defined what good design truly is in our increasingly chaotic world. Raised in Northern England to a textile family and educated at Eton, it's easy to see where he gets his unique blend of disciplined, no-nonsense design. But it was a period of his youth in Japan that set him on a course to become the architect we know today. There, he forged an unlikely friendship with the late Shiro Kuramata, a legendary figure in Japanese design. As a young designer back in the UK, his first projects, mostly apartments in London, were so minimal that even today they would make any design lover blush. Boston's resume is long and fascinating. Churches, airport lounges, homes, door handles, the design of the London Design Museum, and even cookbooks. More on that later. Like his architecture, John Pawson is warm, friendly, and lacking in any pretension or grandstanding. I spoke with John from his studio in London about his youth in England, his latest book, Home Farm Cooking, his tricky relationship with the word minimalism, and where he shops for his signature white shirts. You were raised in a sort of a bucolic part of England that I, I'm not too familiar with, and I was wondering what what life was like for young John Pawson in the Yorkshire Moors. Well, I'm surprised you don't know a lot about Yorkshire because Yorkshire is God's own country. Uh, I mean, I- Englishmen from Yorkshire think, think, or English people from Yorkshire um, think it's the only county. In fact, you know, it's almost a country. And there's a, a, almost a different culture there. The, the slang, the language is probably more varied than any other. I mean, because it's the biggest county, it's got the mo- most variation. And what was your life like as, as, a, as a child growing up there? What, what was it like? You know, you say it's bucolic. It is. I mean, it's the, the, the moors, the, uh, you know, treeless. So they're rather wonderful. And then the, there's the Pennine Mountains. Um, but there's also these um, towns in, in, the, in the valleys which uh, became industrialized because, it, you know, it was the center of the Industrial Revolution with, with the, you know, access to the wool and, and the water. You know, Halifax itself is contained 
um, in this bowl. So it's rather extraordinary when you get to the top of the ridge and look down. I mean, in the old days, um, when I was um, young, you know, I used to go with my father, the, um, there were 150 chimneys, you know, for factories, all belching smoke, and all the beautiful Yorkshire stone was black. So it was a sort of, you know, it looked like black stone. Um, now most of those chimneys are gone and the stone's being cleaned. And the skies are blue. and <laughs> It is kind of bucolic. Back back to being bucolic. And like, what would what would you say like your your youth was? Like, what did you do? You think you had a happy youth? Oh, I was pretty. Yes, I was pretty lucky. I mean, I had four elder sisters who who were jolly nice. Um, the house was big enough, so we we you know we had dogs and cats and chickens and and my sisters had ponies. Um, for some reason, they thought I didn't need a pony when I. And then my sisters would would leave to get to go to school or get married or whatever, and the, and and dad would knock down the wall between my what used to be a cell when I when there were five of us, and then and then became um, so my room got bigger and bigger as my sisters left. And your family was in the the textile business. Uh, can, yeah, can you I mean, explain a little bit about that? Uh, well, actually, we um, dad had some factories uh, making uh, women's clothes, dresses mostly. Oh, okay. um, so we had machinists, and and um, we had two factories in Halifax, and one up in near Newcastle in in Washington. Um, and what kind what kind of uh, like materials were they using? Um, they, they were what we call jerseys. So they were knitted, knitted fabrics. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and we did, we did do, um, printing as well. Um, but we commissioned printing. We didn't have our own print works. So, so we, we designed, um, uh, cloth and then, and then had that printed. And, and how, how did that working with, uh, well, being raised by in, in a family in the textile business, uh, and that sort of it's a, a kind of design like how did that sort of impact your sort of view on the world around you you think well i think i think dad's um you know expertise and his experience i mean it was it, the business was started by his grandfather and and then his father built it up and then dad took over and expanded that i mean it was and of course my mother's side were in textiles too so i mean and and you know my uncle and so the the more spread out family was all, all all involved with that in that area um but dad was always um understood about material so he i mean he could feel you know a cloth and realize that it was you know 50% silk and 20% linen or whatever you know and he knew the weight and everything just just by by feeling it he had a, a you know an extraordinary feeling for for materials and i think that obviously brushed off and even though i um, reacted against the fashion business or the clothing business because it was a constant change and um you know i wanted something more permanent you know bricks and mortar and, and architecture um but but that, that knowledge of materials and my mother's kind of artistic side as well sort of i think somewhere along the line that brushed off a bit and, and i read that you went to to eton as a in the boarding school which is known very well over there uh but to here in the u.s like can you describe a little bit about 
what that was like and, and what it kind of meant and why your parents sent you there? Um, well, I mean, my, my mother didn't particularly want me to go because, I mean, she had an innate modesty and, you know, would have liked me to have ended up being a missionary, you know, in, in some remote place where nobody knew about it. I mean, you know, doing good. I mean, she was genuinely, um, you know, a very, very decent person. Dad, dad, um, was was also you know a fantastic guy, but he 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 you know he quite liked what he thought of as the best of things, and and um, so against my mother's wishes, he 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 got me a place at what was considered the best mm. school. And were you a good, <laughs> and were you a good uh, student at Eton? Um, I I enjoyed it. Um, which is not guaranteed at all. I mean, pe- people had some miserable times, uh, mm. you know, when you're sent away to, you know, to school because it's it's a bit like, I mean, it's based more like on a, a university where you're you're put in a boarding house, mm. and you you walk to different um, tutors who who school you, um, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it can be quite tough, you know, being closeted with 40 boys of different ages who aren't, you know, they're not necessarily there to be kind and mm-hmm. and look after you. Uh, so you, you, But you enjoyed it? Yeah, I'm quite re- thick-skinned and resilient in that sense. I mean, I was teased or bullied, um, you know, because I had a Yorkshire accent and and I, I put put um stuff in my hair to style it uh, oh, really? uh bug you used to call it bug juice in those days because but it but it <laughs> um you know i got had a quiff because elvis uh oh i see okay um, so you like elvis a more billy fury was the english version oh okay so you had like stylish hair and a yorkshire accent and yeah and, and they wouldn't let you get away with it as being a bunch of posh kids no no they they for, got rid of the accent fairly quickly and they ruffle my hair every day you know for six months and so you know I, I stopped doing it which and it's a pity that in a way i didn't use my um my sort of resilience to to actually stick up for people who weren't as mm. Uh, I mean, I just took it as the attention as being flattery rather than uh, serious bullying, Predatory. which it was, because it <laughs> yeah, yeah it could have, you know. So I mean, I, you know, I regret not. I mean, I did do a bit of it, but I didn't do enough standing up. And, and uh, did your family expect you to sort of stay in the business? I mean, did your dad? Oh yeah, I mean, express, you co- of yeah. course. I mean, you'd be you'd be nuts, you know. When you were the only son. Yeah, but my sisters are pretty pretty powerful <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> are they did they join the business yes yeah my my oh, sister okay. um uh, who's uh, older than me she uh, when dad took it easier and then she she took over running it she was the youngest ceo of a of a public uh, company in england so uh, youngest female uh, so she she so she ran it and and uh, and i tried to fit in not 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 very well I mean, I mean, it's it's difficult when you're family because you you know you're learning the ropes, but you 
still think you're, you know, you have a position as a family member, and of course you don't in a, in a you know public company, especially. You, I mean, I should have I should have had my mistakes in somebody else's company. And and, and I'm curious, you know, you spent this time uh, as a young man in Japan, and how did you find your your way there from, you know, from a kid from Yorkshire uh, with an accent to living and working in Japan? Right? How did that change happen? Um, a, a bit, a bit the same. I mean, I, I, I ended up in Japan because I saw a film about a Zen Buddhist monastery, and I thought, you know, um, here would be a, a significant life change to become a Buddhist monk f- forever. Uh, uh, I mean, I lasted one night. Oh, so you actually went through it? Yeah, no, so I got on the plane and uh, <laughs> looked up my only Japanese contact, who, whose father happened to be uh, a monk in a monastery in in, um, in Nagoya, in, in a village. Um, you know, he was the sole monk and or sole priest in charge. And uh, anyway, he, you know, that you know, I wanted some somewhere much more glamorous. So I, I, I found. Did they try to shave your head? And you just kind of uh, said. Uh, well, they don't shave you. They don't shave your head until they, until you they you know that they know you're going to stay. But, ah, uh, okay. Uh, so you lasted one night and then you stayed. And so why? Uh, what did you? What did you do once you well, stayed? I, well, I couldn't go like? back to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I slightly burnt my bridges because I was, you know, working for my father fell through and and. And getting married to Sandra fell through, so um, so I didn't feel that I could go back to England. And I'd, I'd met one other person, Japanese person, and and her father-in-law taught at a university, and they were looking for an English English an English teacher who was English, an Englishman. And um, so I got a job at a university doing that. What were places like Nagoya and Tokyo like back in the in the seventies? Japan's a, b- a little bit like England, you know. The Japanese, they, I mean, you know, we think we think you know we're the best of everything, rosy view of ourselves. And I think the Japanese are also, and uh, Nagoya particularly. They, I remember that the students couldn't understand why on earth they were learning English. What? Why would you need English? You know, because well, because Japan is number one, and. Uh, so it was it was it was quite quite an interesting uh, meeting. Two lots of people that thought they were number one. <laughs> and and uh, how did you find yourself uh, working? Or uh, do you tell me how you characterize it uh, at the studio of a Shiro Kuramata? I mean, I I always wanted to be an architect, but but from from day one, you know, my father said, well, you know, you you can hire an architect. You don't need to be one. Because dad hired architects and really enjoyed spending time with them and messing around with plans and things like that. And then at school, they said, well, you, you, you can't do maths, Pawson, so you can't do architecture. And, um, but I'd always sort of been fascinated and, and, you know, really enjoyed finding out about Mies van der Rohe's work and, um, you know, as a young teenager and then eventually somebody um introduced me to thomas magazine um when i was in newcastle um in the late 60s and i remember opening it and seeing a kuramata um interior and thinking gosh this is you know this is somebody's doing something that you know i had an image of this in my head about what i might want to do and that there is somebody that actually done it no one else had done it except for me and of course, he he wasn't alive anymore. So when I finally got to Tokyo, I 
I found a book, a monograph about him, which again, I didn't know about. So I saw all the work and then I found out because it mentioned where his office was. So I, you know, I then said, well, I'm, you know, John Paulson and <laughs> and can we meet? And I, I don't know what he, who on earth he thought I was because I was 24. And so you showed up at his studio and did you, were you working for him? Like, what did you do? No, no, not at all. No, we, we, we went out for a coffee and he brought along uh, Masayuki Kurokawa, who was Kishio's um, brother. Um, and um, so, I mean, you know, these were two titans of you know, Japanese design world. And there I was sitting having a coffee. And, and, and of course, they give you the benefit of the doubt because it was in the 70s. Oh, gosh, I mean, it's embarrassing now. But I mean, I don't know what they thought I was, but they went along with it. So I, I used to spend time visiting him in his studio, but just to say hello. And, I, you know, he, he showed me things, and then I went to openings of his work. And, and of course, if you if you you know if you admired anything in the office, he gave it to you. So it's very dangerous. I learned I I learned not quickly enough to say not to say anything because. <laughs> do you have anything got, that he gave you still? Yeah, sure do. Yeah, no, I have um, an amazing um, uh, glass, small glass cube, four inches by four inches by four, which was the first time somebody developed a way of gluing glass, one piece of glass to another without you seeing the glue. I mean, it seems normal now, but, but I think the Japanese were the first to do that. So Kuramata did a whole series of glass furniture glued together, but, um, but this was just a, a cube. So it was sort of like a sophisticated Larry Bell um, sculpture with a lid. So I've still got that. And then he gave me some uh, wallpaper. He had a roll of wallpaper, which was a photograph of one of his first uh, chairs ever, which was a, an armchair. And in, in the sides of the chair were these um, drawers, like in a pharmacy, you know, um, drugstore, sort of little boxes for pills. And what did you say, what would you say his influence was on you? Like, what did you learn coming out of that? Because when you return home, you, you you went to school for architecture, and and so what do you what stuck in your mind from sort of spending time with him? Well, I, none of it, none of this really would have, I don't think, would have really happened without him. Because he said he said he got fed up of me hanging around and said, "Why don't I go and study? Go and study yourself." You know, there's a school in London called the Architectural Association, and and he'd been told about that by Isazaki Arata. Isazaki, and um, um, so that's what I did. Before we return to John, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The luxurious pieces are customizable in color, size, and shape, which is why a global list of top architects and interior designers. Specify them for their clients' interiors. Founded in 1996 by the artists Janice Provisor and Brad Davis, Fort Street Studio is world-renowned for its suede-like, hand-knotted wild silk and wool-silk blend carpets that combine traditional techniques with inventive textures and modern, sophisticated aesthetics. In 2021, Rizzoli published the studio's first book titled A Tale of Warp and Weft that chronicles 25 years of adventures in carpet making. For more information, visit fortstreetstudio.com and and when you say you your your career started in the early 80s and you, you you start your studio um is it fair to say that maybe some of the work at the time 
was kind of against the grain of what was going on in in architecture and interiors at the time is that fair to say you think oh totally i mean uh, i mean i mean the aa at the architectural association all the teachers and the whole atmosphere i mean they just thought i was mad you know they just i mean all i was doing was producing boxes as far as they were concerned and turning up with boxes you know to to illustrate you know the the, the final thing i mean the, you know it was a postmodern architecture was the, you know and charles jenks and and um and michael graves it was all uh, that was the prevailing um so it was and why wasn't that for you why wasn't that sort of postmodern moment of color and you know um, I, uh, shape and all that kind it, of it's difficult to, it's difficult to know i mean it, from the very beginning i mean from you know uh, early teens or even before that it it, it um I, it i haven't really changed what what's appealed to me i mean i you, you, you only realized what might have influenced you when you when you go back and people ask questions but i mean it's an instinctive thing but i guess i guess the roots in yorkshire and that no nonsense approach and the you know direct uh, unpre- unpretentious sort of and, and of course the methodist background you know it was it was one of the most popular places for for john wesley to preach and spread the spread the word actually there's a there's a 18th century john porson who was a wesleyan minister who who went to america to convert all you lot in some of your first commissions were were apartments were sort of london apartments and uh there's this beautiful photo of this uh van royan apartment uh that is sort of super minimal and it's just a beautiful photo um that i've seen of it what were those early client meetings like right if you're talking about the 80s and everyone's doing you know memphis and postmodern and michael graves and all that stuff and what were those meetings like? Someone, like, what what were they asking from you specifically, and and what were those conversations like with clients? Um, well, of course, I didn't necessarily think that I was in the service industry, so I thought that you know, I was it was, I was doing it. You know, it started as just being a, an interest for me. I wouldn't say a hobby, but an interest, and and things like vocation or career or were just not words that would describe what, what I thought I was doing. And I mean, Hester, who I did the, that first apartment for, apartment for, of course, I mean, I, you know, I did it without permission and, and we, we only rented it. And, um, so that didn't go down very well. So that, that wasn't, well, that wasn't a very good client briefing or meeting. Um, but, but, um, she, she did love it when, when the dust settled, um, and and then she worked for Waddington Galleries, um, which was on Cork Street in those days in London, and and their clients were interested in minimal art, and and so somebody like Doris Saatchi was an early adopter, and um, you know wanted a house, you know, d- doing very very simply where she could, um, you know, house her art collection. So, the, but it was interesting because I didn't, 
you know, as I said, I, I didn't realize that I was a servant, um, which is what architects are. And, um, and the sooner you realize that, um, the more comfortable and the more successful I think you're going to be. But I didn't, took me a while and a few. Um, <laughs> and, and, and fast forwarding a few years, uh, one of your biggest commissions that's, that's still around uh, is the, the Neuendorf house in Mallorca. Can you, can you describe to, to listeners what that house looks like and, and what that experience is like to walk through it? And tell us a little bit about that. Well, we have this um, Hester, um, who who uh, was is the mother of my elder son. She knew Hans Neuendorf um, because of the art world, and he wanted her, her to buy a, a piece of land in in the south of Mallorca, um, next to his, so that it, it he would be more of a community and more of the land would be sort of controlled. And um, so we we went to see him and and. I mean, he asked me what I would do on the on the land, so I, I gave him a few ideas, and then we ended up uh, building this house. But I, Claudia and I, I think, were both keen that it wouldn't necessarily look like a conventional house. In other words, it wouldn't have a front door or recognizable windows from the outside. And and because it's it's very hot there, obviously, it's nice you know to have small windows. And um, and then we built a courtyard so that you could enter the courtyard and then find the front door. So it wasn't necessarily visible from, and he and Hans wanted to see the uh, the sea. So we built a two-story house with a terrace on the top. So you see the mountains and the sea, and it's it's pretty nice spot he found. And what what, what would what did that project mean for your career? I mean, you don't realize it at the time. I mean, all you realize is that it it was the first chance for us to do a, a, a you know a house in the round. Um, as you said, we'd been doing apartments before that, or shops and things like so it's um how many people how many people were you in studio at the time i think it was just just claudio and i and then we had um crispin osborne uh was another tutor of mine at school and uh, he helped and there was john andrews and um and then uh, vishwa um who was a student out of bath university and he 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 made the model of the neuendorf house and um and he's we're still working together so, um, and I've still got the model. <laughs> and how, how, uh, and how big is your studio today? Uh, the same, I mean, the same, the same as it's been for 20 years or whatever, but it's, 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 it's about 20 people, 20 architects, a, a writer and a couple of graphic designers. And like, from what I've uh, been told is like, you like to keep it that way. Like you don't have this instinct to kind of grow it and take on a lot of other, uh, you know, to kind of grow it beyond a certain point to keep it somewhat intimate. Is that accurate? Well, early on, um, I realized, well, first of all, we weren't, I didn't, I didn't really enjoy the, the um, competition process by which most people, most architects get their work. Um, I mean, and if you want to do big projects and public projects, then you need to do competitions. I understand that. Um, and if you do competitions, you, you need to have a, a, you know, more like 50 people or 150 people uh, once you get these projects. So um, I d it's not, I mean, I didn't make a, a specific choice. I just didn't want to do those things. So I didn't need the people. And, and with 20, you can just about 
get round everybody and see what's going on and be involved personally in each project. In the New York Times in 1995, famed fashion journalist Susie Menkes wrote a piece about the new Calvin Klein flagship on Madison Avenue, his first freestanding New York store. She wrote, The plate glass soars up two stories, flooding the store with light. The floor space is an elongated stretch, like the nave of a church, with pew-like wooden furniture punctuating the York stone slabs. Quote, I wasn't building a monument. I wanted a showcase for what is new and what is modern, insisted Calvin Klein. The commission transformed Pawson's career and struck a rare chord with the public. I wanted to ask John how this pivotal moment for design came to pass. And and after the Neuendorf House, there's a period of time and then then sort of comes Calvin Klein and that sort of phase in your career. Uh, how did that commission for that store come about? Well, that, my whole life changed with Calvin. I mean, it's li- literally, he's responsible for everything. I mean, it, it, if you put it down to one person, I mean, but, um, but it's interesting because he, he, he rang up or his office rang up one day. And of course I didn't, you know, in those days, especially for me or for most people, Calvin Klein was this, you know, one of the most famous people in the world, you know, because mm. his name was everywhere. And then for him to actually turn up personally. <laughs> he <laughs> called you or he just sort of he, showed up? No, he, he, his office called and said, would I speak to Mr. Klein? And I said, yes, of course. And, and he said, well, actually, I'm outside in the car. So he was, really? he, yeah, he'd he been outside in the car for 20 minutes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Waiting to come and in. <laughs> so, oh my God. So just, he just sort of showed up unannounced. Yeah. He, he, uh, Ian Schrager had given him a book of, um, of mine, which is the first book. I think there are only 19 projects in it, uh, or if that, and, uh, or nine, pro- anyway, it was very s- small, but it must have touched some nerve and he was looking for, you know, an, an unknown to, to sort of help him do the store and um, you know and we got on so it was it was nice but it was and are you still in touch with him today he, very much yeah, yeah yeah I mean he and he pops in sometimes and he's you know he's he's um, got a got a house in in LA and um, and you know and he has projects and he's, he's very interested in doing it himself so you know you know he shows me things he's been doing. And what did he? T- what did he tell you that he wanted? What was that brief like? What, were, what was that first meeting when he popped in? What, what did he? What did he say to you that that made that clicked that you knew you guys were going to get along? I mean, obviously his style is was very known, and uh, but how did you know that working relationship was going to work? Well, I think you. I think you know when you get on with somebody, don't you? I mean, this is. I mean, I think chemistry is a bit too strong uh, word, but people bandy it around. But, um, and also he, you know, he, I mean, he, he would have been an architect. He would like to be an architect. And it's interesting that, that I wanted to be an architect, but I, I, you know, I first went into fashion for six years. And then, um, so I suppose he could always, you know, be an architect. Well, he probably, well, he sort of is. Yeah. I mean, building his own things. And when it comes to that store, like when, I mean, today we kind of look back on it as this sort of iconic New York space uh, that sort of helped to define an era of fashion and the way we thought about 
fashion brands and the experience and the space and the kind of uh, moving beyond simply the, the actual clothes themselves. What did you, what was that reaction like when you had this sort of super, super minimal space that you had created for him? Um, well, I remember the the, the, the the first day the store opened or was open for people. Or, you know, it, I mean, pe- the first people through the door were, were people who was lo- looking around as if it was a museum. You know, they were, well, I, I mean, in, or not a museum, but just a, an architectural space to enjoy. So it was rather weird. So, <laughs> you know, they were sitting on benches and looking at cornice detail or the window frame or... And it, I thought, oh my God, is this is this what I've you know what Calvin and I have created as a he he was he oh yeah because it, look it 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 I mean that's what's made Calvin so successful is is this is a person who gets what he wants in in I mean in that I mean that in the best sense in other words he gets architecturally what he wants and he and he contributes to that and it's very much his personal. Thing. You know, if I'd been left to my own devices, it, it, it wouldn't. It would be a different store. I mean, or different aesthetically. But, but it's. But of course, what's allowed me to do, you know, lots of different projects is that you know the collaboration with the, each time with the client gives you a different outcome. And at what point in your career did you start to? not transition to product design, but when you started to include that in your practice, when, how did that initially come about? Cause it's such a, to me, it's, it's so, uh, integral to, to, to your work. Uh, but it's not something that a lot of certain architects actually kind of take to what, how did your first, do you remember what was your first like you know, product design commission? Well, we, it's always been something that if I felt the project needed it, then I would, you know, we would design it and get it made. And then if, if the people that made it, um, you know, wanted to, um, take advantage of that or sell it or, or, you know, make it, make it into a product that was fine. I mean, and that's a good thing. Um, but it's it's only doing things that I need for the project. I mean, there isn't time or money really to to you know to to design everything for every project. You know, it, it's very time consuming because it is like designing a building. You know, the the cook pots that we did took like nine years or something ridiculous. When when it comes to like the design museum in London with your work for them, how how did that? How does that connect with who you are as a designer? Oh yes, I mean people pointed out, um, oh you're, you know, you're designing the design museum, like a designer is designing the design, and uh, so I was, and I never ever thought about it as being weird. I mean, it, you know, it it was a competition. Um, it's on my doorstep. I had to be, well, I mean, it sounds a bit. Um, arrogant, but I had to be persuaded to to enter the competition because um, I don't normally, um, and and it was a fantastically run competition. And they said, whatever you do, don't um, make a model or do a design. We just want to understand your process so that we can, you know, make a shortlist and so on. So, of course, every architect 
Under the Sun was on the list, and and we all made models and designs and and so you broke your your no competition rule for that one broke the no competition rule broke their rules which was no design and no you know models and uh and uh, catherine very kind my wife catherine very kindly gave me a lift with my model to the presentation which is of course always a scary thing and um so i could carry the model and um and when when we were leaving, I saw this huge van pull up, and it was David Chipperfield, and he had a model that was four times the size of mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, did you have model envy? Uh, I I definitely had depression. I thought that's it, that's it. Actually, it oh, was no. very nearly was it. Um, in fact, we out of the hundred, David and I got down to the last two. And it was amazing when I saw his scheme afterwards because it, it was, um, I mean, we were both very much thinking on the same lines. And, and of course, he'd gone to as much trouble as I. I think I think what they they saw, I think they, either would have been fantastic. Um, but I think they, you know, I have a very small practice compared to David's and that, I'm not sure it's necessarily right, but I mean, clients always on these things, they always want to feel that you're there a lot of the time and and uh, actually you don't need to be because, you know, if you've got good people and a good idea, then it should be fine. But but I sort of, you know, because I live ne- next door, um, I sort of, I think that won the day. And when it comes to the design museum, what did you when you were designing, making your model, and and creating your scheme for it? What what did what was in your head? What did you feel like? This is what was the one thing you needed to really uh, nail very well in that design to make the design museum work? Um, well, it's an existing. It was an existing building um, with a spectacular roof but but clearly it's a design museum so the 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 galleries um have to work and have to be special that was one thing and then and then you have this huge atrium which was the um sort of core when it was a uh, like a marketplace for all the commonwealth countries wares so uh, you needed to handle that the atrium was was much bigger than than it needed to be for a design museum, but I think it was a pity to lose that um and I've noticed that some people say well actually the, uh, there were a million visitors within a year, and every one of those million had a different opinion so and it's the first public building where you know it's been open to you know to for people to say whatever they think so you 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 know people some people loved it some people i couldn't understand why but didn't like it you know it's too big too white too open too wood too not not light enough you know whatever i mean complete but it's interesting if you put your head above the parapet you know you've got to be prepared to be shot i suppose Paulson has used books throughout his career to communicate visually and break down complex ideas on design into more digestible arguments his latest is Home Farm Cooking, published by Fiden and written with his wife, Catherine. It's actually his second cookbook to date, and it's filled with images of his own home in the English countryside and his favorite seasonal dishes he and his wife have collected over the years. 
it's yet another example of how Pawson's eye and ethos can be translated into our everyday lives and on every scale. And, you know, unlike a, a lot of architects that I know, you have an interesting relationship with food as you, you've had. Do you mean uh, I eat too much? No, no, that, that I can say for <laughs> not that kind of relationship, but you do, uh, you have, you've done, you know, now more than one, uh, uh, cookbook and, and sort of before we start talking about home farm cooking, which is the new one, your earlier book, uh, living and eating, which is sort of like a, uh, you know, a collector favorite now, um, how did that come about? Like why, you know, if you're doing <laughs> so much in your, in your practice, uh, and, like, where did that come about? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, that you, you know, you get criticized for things. I mean, as an architect, I mean, there are architects who feel the interior is is, is secondary, which is absolutely crazy. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's about inhabiting buildings. It's not, you're not walking along a street looking at them, you know, most of the time. Um, you know, the ones, and as, as we discussed, the, Designing stuff to go in them uh, could be considered, you know, distracting. I, 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 I think it's essential for the thing, I, and I think what you eat is really, really important. I don't. I'm not saying that um, that it informs the architecture or or the other way around, but um, it's a very important part of living. You know, the most important part, and it does influence architecture how you how you you. Um, entertain or sit around the table or interact with the family or or the public or whatever so it's so I, i've never i've always thought it odd that whatever i've done seems to invite uh criticism just you know and from the beginning you know there's the whole minimalist thing um for some reason people seem to think that it's a criticism of them clients come to me and and Asked me to do that for them, but I don't. I don't proselytize or you know push it. Uh, Martha Stewart was doing. A, wanted to do a shoot in one of the, uh, one of our houses, all our house. I mean, rather one of my uh, bits of architecture ended up by being in our house. And um, they they, I suggested Annie Bell, who was Johnny Bell, my, who worked on landscape in, in the office at the time and she was a very good cook and so we put together this menu of um, squid risotto fantastic meal and and Annie said oh you know because it went well and M Martha published it and and um, and she said well we should do a book about this and so I, I said fine and and it's it was funny because I thought I'm I'm the person that makes decisions <laughs> aesthetic decisions and general decisions you know because you know, because I have a small office and everything has to go through me eventually. So I sort of thought I was, you know, king of this small place. And, and um, of course, I, I was in for a rude shock because, of course, Annie Bell knew much more about food than I did. And so it was very difficult to, um, to persuade her to do an all-white cookbook. You know, it had to have some green in it and... and and God save us, it had tomatoes, which are red, so, and meat, which has blood. And, I mean, and so it, it became completely not my menu, but a very successful book. And I love it. I love eating it. <laughs> and, and when it comes to you spending this time to say, to create this new book, Home Farm Cooking, that you did with your wife, Catherine, uh, why is it worthwhile for you as an architect to put your energy into something like this, you think? 
Um, I think because you're made, you made, you made to think very specifically about um, the food and what comes to the table and the, you know, and editing is, is part of it. And, and really what you need, I mean, the battery, the cuisine or whatever it's called, all the, all the stuff, you know, and obviously to do a cookbook, I mean, all the stuff was ours, but, but it's more, it's definitely, we've got more than you need, which is breaking my own rules. Um, but it's that editing process and it's very satisfying to sort of go through the four seasons and with the food and the stuff and the, and work out where things are going to come from. It does remind us to, you know, to pick nettles now and make that risotto and that sort of wild garlic. And, and uh, what is your guilty pleasure when it comes to food? If I if we went to your kitchen in that house and, course, and look, course, open the fridge, of course I don't have one. Of course I don't have one. I mean, yeah. But uh, I do like vanilla ice cream. That I mean, Catherine makes for for me. She makes vanilla ice cream, and and I mean, I have to have it before it's frozen. Before it, go, it I, I, it seems to lose something if you if you have to freeze it, which is of course what you do with ice cream normally, but. So I, something, I so about that something. she gives me a dollop from the um churn or whatever it is. <laughs> and it seems like the book is is sort of perfectly timed for the sort of pandemic uh era as it features one of your own homes, you know, fairly fairly heavily in this period where we're all kind of working and living and and doing more from home than ever before. Has your life changed during di- during the pandemic, and in terms of like how you think about food and domestic life, and how we sort of relate to the home? Well, we did the cookbook during lockdown, so so in a sense, it, it's a product of that, or it's a product of being able to focus. I think because it's like when I wrote Minimum, um, which I thought was going to be a textbook, not a picture book. Um, you know, I only, I only had to write 10,000 words in the end, but I thought I was going to take a year off. Right? But it was pointed out to me that, that my fee for writing the book wouldn't cover a year's salary. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, at the beginning of lockdown, there were all these things where architects were asked and, and they were all terribly creative and all the things they were going to do. And I felt very left out because I, I just, I mean, it just, my mind went blank. I mean, I couldn't work and I couldn't, I didn't think, gosh, this is all this time that I've, that I've got now that I can use. I mean, the one benefit for me personally was that, that um, both my sons came to stay for a year and worked from home. And, and because I designed the country house with you know, three separate kitchens, um, it avoided any friction because they all, they each had their own kitchen, which is, so three bedrooms, sorry, four bedrooms, three kitchens. And now just to sort of like to pull, to pull back a little bit in this, in this era, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic era, we're possibly still in it, um, where there's all these shifts in technology and the way that the world works. And um, what lessons would you like the world to sort of really understand about design and the inbuilt environment that can sort of help us now in this new, in this sort of new time and place that we find ourselves in? I think, well, I mean, 
we, we, we know what the recommendations are. Um, and it's only about actually people doing it or, or we, you know, doing it. I mean, the, I mean, the natural, I mean, the, the, the waste or well, the consumption, you know, the Western consumption and, and waste is, is, you know, is, is a, you know, is a, is a really sad thing. And, 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 and of course, the, the Europe or the and America and the center of you know, this Western society or whatever we call it is, you know, we're we're so so, so much the bad guys compared you know to to the Africa and all these. I, I don't know how you. I mean, it's you know, it's interesting that that in our neighborhood, you've got to be very careful now walking. Because I usually cross the road without looking too carefully, because I can my hearing's very good. Um, but of course, all these electric cars, you know, they just whoosh past. And 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 we, we you know, I, I guess, I mean, it, I'm sure there's an irony because it probably uses a lot of consumption to make the batteries. But, but it, it, we're sort of, you know, it's depressing. It's a depressing sort of future on one level, but on on the other hand. You know, I think there's enough people. There's, there is a groundswell where where we're um, becoming much more concerned, as as it, as of course the, the threat gets bigger and nearer. I mean, I'm always conscious that you know, just building is not, you know, is consuming energy. You know, whatever you build it in. And do you think that you know, is that that idea of consumption, which I think is maybe linked more to the minimalism that we were talking about, is it really more about consuming less rather than just building more space or redesigning the space that we have is that is that fair to say yes i think well again it's you know we, half our work is 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 renovating things um but you're still using energy and and sometimes i mean i don't really weigh it up scientifically but if you you know, might, you might use more energy to to to, re, to repurpose a, build, a building that's existing rather than building a new one. But we could all, I mean, we could definitely all do with less. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's sort of slightly frivolous, but I mean, I've, I've just never understood why people always have to have a different outfit every day. But then people can't understand why I've only got one white shirt. And uh, I, I will say, you're, you're sort of the iconic white shirt that people always see you in. Where is that shirt from? Where's, where is, what, is it a Calvin Klein shirt? Is it, what is that? Where does uh, John Paulson get his white shirt? Well, different places for different decades. I don't know um, this particular, well, this decade, for some reason, it's Chavez, um because I can order them on, online i mean i i mean i did go to the shop in paris and it completely confused me because they they asked me what weight i wanted and there, there's 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 one model with three or four weights um and of course the the, the price varies but um uh, very very high but uh but but um yes I, i've favored all sorts of different manufacturers including Is isimiaki had some um, very um, designed shirts in the old days, which was nice. Because I mean, I think because of Kuramata, um, 
and you know, he was a friend of Isimiaki's. So he always had a nice starch white shirt. But it's very uncomfortable. When you see another interior or an architecture project that people praise, perhaps, or at least that people label as minimalist, right, or essentialist, what is if you know if you see it being done wrong or something that in a way that you think is is might be minimal but still not great? What are the pitfalls of something like that? Because I think to to someone who's not trained, they would think of minimalist as you know there's less mistakes that you can make but in in fact the people that know design often the more minimalist it is the, the harder it is to do really well so uh what are some common pitfalls of minimalism i've noticed that um actually the the magazine wallpaper they have a a, a daily sort of brief or on, on you, you get an email every day with 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 something nice but I've noticed that they've started using minimal every day. So, so every day <laughs> there is a minimal house or bridge or something like that. And I suppose it is. And, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I tend to keep my head down and, you know, get on with my own work. I mean, I'm very against, um, you know, cause I do, you know, obviously what you, you know, you socialize and you mix with archi other architects and, and some of us are angry architects or people, and 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 for them, they it seems to irk them that you know there is, um, I wouldn't say bad work, but there is work that doesn't they don't like. But I don't find I don't find it very positive to um, be negative about things when there's so much you can be positive about. And I I, I never noticed that. I mean, for, you know, when I started. You know, people thought I was genuinely odd. I mean, you know, my sister, as a joke, sent me a piece of blank white paper saying, you know, this is my entry into the minimalist club. You know, haha. -ha. You know, and, and it was quite witty at the time. And, 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 and of course, she knew me and she knew, well, hopefully she, <laughs> she knew I wasn't mad. But, but, I mean, it was so eccentric for people, you know, to have a room with nothing in it. And now, and now there are lots of them, so... And my last question is, uh, you know, you started your career doing apartments and you mentioned this, this house that you're doing in Seoul. So if someone wanted to come to you and have you do their house, their country house or, or their apartment, uh, how do they do that? And how do you know that, you know, what are the right and wrong things to say to John Pawson to get him to, to design your house? Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's very interesting because I think m most of the people that turn up here um, have gone through quite a process, which I'm I'm not privy to really, or I don't ask. But they've sifted through and they've done their due diligence or research, and then they they you know they come fairly knowing what what what's going on, and and you know, and if they like me and I like them, which is you know, I think fairly predictable i think if, if if you've done the work and and researched it um so that's fairly smooth but there are people who you know don't bother to think and turn up and haven't researched it and you know you you've you know you there is no questionnaire you know you 
um, to get through the door. So sometimes you, you do have these <laughs> very funny meetings, which never take less than an hour, because it, by the time you said hello and listened, um, but at least you, 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 know, you can console yourself that an hour wasted in the office is much better than a whole project going wrong. But uh, I mean, I think it, it's self-selecting, self but you, you, it, the, the thing is, I can never win, you know, win a job or, or compete for a job or um, because it's so much about um, chemistry and, and, and uh, you know, pitching, you know, if I wrote to somebody saying, oh, I think I'd be good for your development or you know, the house next door or something. It, uh, Unless they know, you know, unless they're privy to the work and the whole thing, it's not, it's not a starter. Thank you to John Pawson, Becky Sunshine, and the team at Fiden for making this episode happen. Home Farm Cooking is available online now. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.